but I still had issues with other aspects of my trauma, other aspects of abandonment, other aspects of not having my parents in my life. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, a licensed professional counselor and nationally board certified counselor in the state of Alabama. The focus of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to have real conversations concerning taboo topics that people in the church may find themselves struggling with or feel they may not be able to talk about. The topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. These topics are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, nor is it a substitute for a diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. All right now, let's get started. Hey everyone, my name is Denise Lee and I'm the host of the Real Talk 238 podcast. So thankful you came to listen to this episode. Today on my podcast, I will be interviewing Felicia Miller. I have interviewed her before on episode 25 when we talked about stopping negligence in the church. Today's interview took place back in August of 2021. It happened during when the pandemic was taking place. You will want to listen to this interview. It is so insightful, so helpful for anybody out there that is struggling with that instant gratification, or they've been through trauma and they want that immediate healing, you will want to listen to this podcast. There is a short announcement and then the interview will start. Have a wonderful day. If you are a pastor's wife, a minister's wife, or a woman in ministry, then you will want to listen to this important announcement for some exciting news. Coming October 5th through the 7th of 2023, there will be a retreat in Independence, Missouri. The theme for this year's Resolute and Refresh Ladies Ministry Retreat is Raw But Real. The definition of resolute is admirably purposeful, determined, and unwavering. Resolute and Refresh Ladies Ministries Retreat is designed for women who are the wife of a pastor, the wife of a minister, or women who are involved in ministry and understand how important it is to be purposeful, determined, and unwavering. These women understand that no matter what level or capacity they serve in ministry, there are times when a few days away are needed so they can be the best that they can be for their spouses, their families, and their churches that they serve. The purpose of this retreat is to invite women together who are involved in ministry so they can specifically be ministered to and be refreshed. Women who attend this retreat will have a place to just get away for a few days so they can be supported, refreshed, and return to their churches feeling rejuvenated. The speakers who are chosen for this retreat are godly women who are greatly anointed. For those who attend, 
they will get to hear four amazing and anointed speakers. There will also be a mental health panel where questions can be answered. The lineup of speakers are Denise Lee, Candace Barlow, Tiffany Nance, and Rebecca Anderson. The mental health panel will include Denise Lee, Shannon Powell, and Connie Jordan. There will be worship, corporate prayer, and a great time of fellowship. To register, go to the Resolute and Refresh Ladies Ministry page on either Instagram or Facebook and click the link. This will take you to the registration page. For more information, go to Resolute and Refresh Ladies Ministry page, or you can even send an email at Resolute and refresh lm at gmail.com. That is R-E-S-O-L-U-T-E-A-N-D-R-E-F-R-E-S-H-L-M at gmail.com. Now for the Real Talk 238 podcast. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Thank you today for coming on to the Real Talk 238 podcast, where we take challenging topics and deal with them. I'm pretty excited about my guest today. She is a colleague, and not only that, she's a friend who I very much value. And we had met, actually, I think I reached out to her through Facebook, of all places. Her name's Felicia Miller. She lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. She is a therapist. She's also a member, as well as I am, of the Center for Apostolic Counselors, which for those of you who are part of the apostolic faith are thinking about seeing a counselor, go check it out because there may be somebody in your state, your area that's licensed in your area that is of the same faith as you. She's married to Tobias. She's been married for 18 years, has three kids and a dog, and she attends Faith Apostolic Church. And she's been in church since she's been about 18 years old. And as far as ministry goes, she says work is her ministry. And I couldn't agree with that more because being a therapist, that is a ministry. You have to have a heart for it. It's definitely not for everybody. Here's the other thing before I finish introducing her. The other thing about being a therapist, some people don't realize this, like there's certain areas of being a therapist, like there's couples therapist, there is trauma therapist, there is sex therapist, there is working with bipolar, personality disorders, ADHD, autism, kids only, littles only, adolescents right. only, women only, men only. It specializes. It specializes, right. Just so if you are not, have never known this about therapists, that some people, it's just not good for them to work with certain areas. So like, I am not a couples therapist. I love all my friends, all my therapy friends who are couples therapists, because I know right where to refer people to if that's the issue. I'm not saying I won't work with couples. It's just not so much my forte. It's a unique thing to have them argue. You got to be good in who you are. That's right. Because when they start arguing, and if you have like a domestic violence background, and you grew up in your parents fault, or you had, you know, like in a home where your parents fought, or you have an ex that you fought with, man, it can be very triggering to be like, Ooh, I want to get him punch you in your face. Like who are you talking to? <laughs> so she describes herself as you can see from this little bit of before we've gotten deep into this, she says that it depends on if she's had her coffee on how well she describes herself. She's a woman who wears many hats and tries to follow the voice of God. She says she's not perfect and always 
is a work in progress of balance being human and living a disciplined Christian life. And a fun fact about Felicia is that she lives by following her instincts and many of life's most memorable moments and changes have been due to an instinct in jumping. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Wonderful. I've been enjoying my kids being back in school. Oh yeah. Party time. Yeah. Last week, it was a whole lot of sleeping. And just resting and enjoying the silence. This week, it started with working out and getting up and not going back to bed and trying to do behind the scenes work with having a private practice. And it's I'm busy. That's where I live at. The other thing too, some people think our lives are boring as a therapist. And that's further <laughs> from the truth, to be honest. It is one of my clients that I've seen for a long time. And I respect them. I adore them. They're such a rock star. Like I've got quite a few moms that are just rock star moms that I would love to put them on blast because they don't get enough, you know, acknowledgement of how amazing they are. And a couple of my moms were like, I would love to see you do like a uh, blip video, you know, life in the day of a therapist to show just like everything. And I'm like, man, that would be awesome. And then I thought, I don't have the brain power to do something like that. Oh man. (laughs) That would be very interesting simply because, you know, a lot of people think therapy is this you're in it and it's because of how it's portrayed in media, you know, movies, what have you. They think it's somebody sitting, laying on a couch and you are, the therapist is behind their head, taking notes, drawing pictures or whatever they're doing. And it is nothing, nothing like that. I don't even have a couch in my office. No, I do. But you work with couples too, right? I, I work with everybody. I have I have couch and I got the couch simply because it was comfortable and it's an L-shaped couch. And so you can get a nap. And I do take naps on it. And everyone knows that I take naps on my couch. I have no problem. I'm an advocator. My brain has shut down. I am better if I take a power nap and I get back up. But it's so, and I've got two chairs. And so it's very funny. I'll have clients that will come in and they take their shoes off. They grab the blanket, they arrange the pillows how they want, they stretch out and they start talking. So you do have those people that lay down on your couch. I do have those people that, and I, anyone that's new, I'm like, Hey, however you can be comfortable. I'm all for it. You want this chair? Which chair do you want? You want the couch? It's fine. I have other people. They just spread everything out. And I mean, they just, they slouch and they get super comfortable. And then I have other people who are very rigid and they just sit very straight and they don't really move. So it's like, I have a wide variety, but I remember thinking I did want a couch in case I had those people who do better with being able to like stretch out. Well, you're just awesome. Cause <laughs> I had a couch in that office, but I took it out just cause I didn't have the room in there. I don't know if it's awesome as much as it's what I had at my other place. And I learned from watching the kids because I would have kids who would sit at the table with me in color. And then I would have kids that were like, Pfft. And they'd go lay on the couch and play with the pillows. And so I think that kind of helped influence me having a couch. So today we got to talking about like instant gratification. And I think that is such an important topic to dive into, particularly this day and age we live in. Like people are so impatient and I see this, well... I was thinking about my youngest son. He, for those of you who do not know, I have an autistic son. He's high functioning and just very caring. He is a typical 19 year old kid. You know, he has 19 year old stuff that comes up. But the one thing I I did not understand early on about individuals with autism is that they do not like repetitive learning. So like in school, 
with math, particularly you do the one step and you do that over and over and over, and then you move to the next step. His view is why do I have to do that? I already did it. That's a real thing. Yeah. When I think about like, when it comes to church and, and even working with people, some people, especially in the church, cause this is, this is geared more t- towards people in the churches. I come in, prayed through and everything's supposed to be wonderful. And that's not the way it is because guess what? Life is going to hit you smack in the face. And then it's like, but I prayed about it. Or even the saints sitting on the pew who've been in church their entire life, see someone new coming in and have their weeping, snotting, tearful, Holy Ghost feeling moment. And they do good for a couple of months and then they kind of stumble a little bit and, you know, they have a little bit of relapse and they become very mean. Right. I don't understand why you, why, why you can't just change. I don't understand. Yeah. Why can't you get it together? Yeah. What you're coming, like you got the Holy ghost. Like, what do you mean you relapsed? What do you mean you had something happen? Like, that's not what happened with me. See, back in my day, we just came and put our cigarettes on the altar. We came and put our liquor on the altar and, you know, we was cured and we were healed in the name of Jesus. We didn't need treatment. It's that, that it can go both ways. (laughs) I was like, man, preach it, preach it. (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna have fun <laughs> you know how do you think people need to work with well I don't know where do you want to go with this on the instant gratification we were kind of like what we were talking about is one of the things that I've noticed since being in private practice is and, and also really what I've noticed in the last few years with my own personal journey is I can tell when people how people know me by decade and how they respond to me or what they call me. Okay. You're going to have to explain that one. Cause I'm like, I'm over here. I'm already got this grin. Like, all right. <laughs> well, <laughs> because like my family, they all call me a certain name. They're the only ones who know that name. And it is a name that I despise with every being in me. And I new people. I will correct you real quick. I did not say that. That is not my name. Please don't call me that if you want me to respond to you. And I remember the first time my husband like heard everyone call me this particular name and he froze. Was like, I was like, dude, trust me. I've, I've tried for 20 years of my life. They still call me this. And then there's other nicknames that certain older family members, you know, like all my cousins call me fish. They all call me fish. They all call me fleet. They've called me that since I was a little kid. My nieces and nephews all call me TT. And then there are people that I know from when I used to work in the bars and when I worked in the strip clubs. So then my name was Desiree. And so people would come up and that's all they knew me as was Desiree because I didn't tell anybody my real name. And so that's why I said, like, I can tell, you know, or if they call me by my last, my maiden name, Reinhardt, like, oh, that's Felicia Reinhardt. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know me from before I ever got married. (laughs) You know, so that's why I said, like, I, I know people by what they call me or what they're perception of me is will tell me what part of my life they were in on if they come and they say oh you know you're this angry mean person and you fight all the time you were part of my life during the teenage and early 20 years when I did fight all the time and I was angry all the time like everything was f you and middle finger in the air and oh let's like you know get a baseball bat let's go fight like that's (laughs) that was kind of who I was and then it kind of chilled out and then there was you know this like okay, we're all going to be very nice and we're all going to be like, you know, whatever. And now it's definitely a lot nicer and more blunt, which I've always been blunt, but like, it's, it's a lot more padded now than what it used to be. Right. And so it's, 
it that's why I said it just depends and I can always tell like oh you you were near me there yeah <laughs> I was still angry I was still bitter I was <laughs> like oh okay I was during the infertility phase where I hated every pregnant person and I was mad at life and I was hopped up on hormone pills and like I had no control so here you have these you know somebody that comes in comes to church and they've got baggage that's just what it boils down to yeah. they've got they're walking yes. in with a boatload of baggage. Some people have a small suitcase and other people have a mm -hmm. tow truck behind them, you know? Uh, oh, absolutely. Dr. Diane Langberg. And I know you're reading the yes. same book that I'm reading. One of my favorite quotes from her is trauma is the 21st century missions field. And it is like every church is full of someone who's experienced some form of abuse, right? Medical trauma. That's a real thing. No one acknowledges that. You've got people who've grown up in abusive homes or, you know, they've experienced racial attacks from systemic racism. They've experienced being abused by different groups or communities or whatever, or even in whatever, but trauma. Yeah. Everybody in your church is got some form of trauma. And, and if you don't recognize that as a person in leadership, you're going to fail. I mean, it's going to be a challenge definitely. Cause it's going to be like, why do they keep doing this? Why do they keep acting <laughs> yes. this way? And, and I think yeah. that too, you know, cause don't you teach on trauma informed care? I know. Cause I teach on it. Yes, I do. Cause if the more that you understand trauma informed like you have that piece, the better you can help people because you don't see a bad person. You see the reactions of the behavior that they have experienced. Yeah. And the reactions, I, I know something I had come across. It's like their reactions are actually very normal to an adverse situation that they went through. So as far as like the instant gratification piece of it, how do you work through that? Like how, I mean, cause it's, it's not instant. That's for sure. No, I think one of the, one of my things I do in therapy that I, that trend crosses over into real life is normalizing stuff and talking about stuff, right? Normalize. You're going to struggle with this normal and take away shame and, and being able to speak up. Cause like when we were growing up and I didn't grow up in the Apostolic church, I grew up in a different church and a different denomination. And then we didn't go to church for a long time. And then we came in, I came in at 18 and got my little Holy ghost and Jesus name baptism. And then I was out, you know, like I went and got engaged to my boo thing. I was going to be married to forever and was off living my best life of post-trauma that and I grew up in a family that there was so much dysfunction and alcohol, sexual abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence. And this was enmeshed with church. Yeah. Like it came from church leaders and then it stemmed down. And then you had generational poverty, generational dysfunction that went from literally one generation to the next generation. My generation of cousins and siblings, we, it stopped with us. We all hit the pause and said, no, we, this stops here. We this, we're done with this. But yet we all had this abuse and we all had this trauma and some people there, there are wonderful aspects that I can say, yes, I can say at a camp meeting in Indiana during the summer, when we were youth leaders with Jesus house, we had a group of our kids. There was a very supernatural spiritual thing because I was an angry person. Like I, I would have people tell me my eyes would turn black. Something would happen. 
And I was a totally different person once I hit this level of anger. And I can remember being there and praying with all these kids. And there was something spiritual that happened that that, that anger that had become my driving force that became my best friend that, you know, was like, it was addictive. I loved adrenaline. I loved fighting like that. It, it was like, it left. And I was like, Ooh, something just happened. And it, it was my, that anger, but I would still get mad. It just wouldn't be at the same level. And I can pinpoint and say that that was something that happened, but I still had issues with other aspects of my trauma, other aspects of abandonment, other aspects of not having my parents in my life. And that came out and no one talked about it. Nobody in the church talked about it. You know, no one was like, oh, this is what this is. Like no one in the church knew how to help me. When we came back, my husband had started going to church for a year before I did. He grew up, his grandpa was pastor and he's like, I'm going to go to church. And I said, have fun. I'd sit at home and he would go to church. I'd sit there and smoke a blunt and I'd watch The Apprentice and he'd come home and be like, hey man, how was church? Same people, y'all sang, y'all shout. Yep, that's great. And then I would just go about my business. He was never pressuresome. You know, he was never like, woman, you're my wife. You're supposed to be this way. You're supposed to come to church. I'm the man, I'm the authority respect my authority. He wasn't like that. You know, he was just like, okay, baby, I love you. It's okay. A year goes by. And the thing that pushed me back into church was I had a very close friend of mine that I brought into the club. I introduced her to the game and, you know, how to finesse people for money, how to finesse men for money. And she went the whole different way. And then on the back end, I had to learn it wasn't my fault she came with her own trauma of like just dysfunction and messed up and that she was dealing with and she wound up tricking and you know became a sex worker because she was so addicted to cocaine and then next thing you know she overdosed and we were actually told this horrific thing by a girl that she was like sex murdered like it was a john who mutilated her and murdered her and did all this stuff so me and all the girls all my stripper friends and one of them I'm still friends with. I'm still, I love her. I, two of them, actually. There's two of them I'm still really good friends with. This particular one, we all went, we found, we went, we was going to sing like canaries to the detectives. We know all the men she's hanging out with. Here's all the numbers. Like, because all the girls were scared. You got a club full of strippers who are afraid to walk out to their car because they're afraid they're going to get followed and get mutilated. Like, this was like some SB, SBU stuff. And we're like, whoa, this is reality. And okay, I need a blunt. I can't handle this reality. And, you know, everybody's still getting high and drinking and, you know, what have you. And then the cop was like, no, she died by suicide. And we were like, whoa. So then it turned into, we're going after this girl. And, you know, we all kind of hunted her down and showed up at her house and she wouldn't come out. And so it became a whole thing. And then that's a whole nother story. But my friend died by suicide. We'll just leave it at that. Cause that, that, that becomes a whole nother thing. <laughs> like that girl got beat up every club she went to because she scared all the strippers in Indianapolis. We went to her funeral and she was cremated. And I just remember being so overwhelmed, like standing there, like her life ended in a tiny box. Like literally there's nothing left. She it's in a tiny box. And then I don't even my time frame, you know, trauma. When you do trauma work, you just know your your time frame is like this. So my time frame back then is really like this. So for for those of you who cannot see, yeah. uh, when she says 
my time frame is like this. Her, t- her hand is going up and down kind of like a wave. So just, just putting that visual in there for you. I know that'll help. Anyone who knows me could totally see me talking with my hands. <laughs> but those of you who don't know, I do. I talk with my hands. But then I don't, I don't know when, but like all of a sudden, so there were these money men that I hung out with. Okay. And, and when I say money, man, I mean, like they would come in and be like, Hey, Des, how much money do you need? And I'm like, yeah, I need like a thousand dollars. They're like, cool, here's a thousand dollars. But that meant I had to work with them all night long. I couldn't see any of my other regulars. I could only do the stage work, but I could not at all. They, they were my clients for the night. So they would come in. These men were very intelligent. They were Hispanic and they spoke like five different languages. Like it was crazy how intelligent they were, which was a red flag for me in the sense of like, you have a lot of money, you speak five languages. This tells me you guys are kind of involved on another level of like illegal activity that I should probably just meet you inside because, you know, lower level, you know, they don't do that. Upper level, they do that. So I was like, but all my girlfriends were hanging out with them outside and going shopping and doing all this stuff, but I never did. And I was actually dating my husband at the time. All I knew is all of a sudden, they're all over the news. There was a raid. These guys all got prison for life. It was like 25 years. The money men? The money men all got prison. Yep, 25 years to life. And a couple of the girls that was with that were in the house, they got like five years like something like that. And, you know, the detectives had come to the club and was trying to ask questions, but those of us, they didn't have footage of us outside the club. They, they had nothing they could ask us, you know, cause it was like, well, I just was working. I was, I was doing my job. You have nothing on me outside. And so that was like a, whoa, wait a minute. Like <laughs> I could, I could be with them and going to prison. So you got one box, which, and that was a big thing for me. I was like, I got two boxes as prison cell or cremation box. And I don't want either of them. And I remember, I don't remember when this happened, but there was a particular girl I used to work with. So when you work in the strip clubs, it's all about game and finesse and illusion. Okay. So there were times where I would dance with girls and I would go on stage because we would partner together because it gave us double the money. You know, never that I was actually interested in, like, we weren't ever interested in each other. You know, it was just, it was the fool, the guy who was giving us money. And so one of my girls that we would partner with, because a lot of times it would be like yin and yang, you know, we were playing a role. I would be one role, she would be a role. And so she was my yin and yang type person. And I remember she called and I was sitting at the bar and the guy hung up the phone laughing. I'm like, you know, like, dude, what's up? And he was like, oh, this particular person. And I won't say her stage name because um, I still don't even know what her real name was. But she was like, oh, you know, so-and-so said that she went to an apostolic campground and she got the Holy Ghost. And, and I looked up and I was like, what? I was like, repeat that? And he's like, yeah, she says she went to an apostolic campground and she got the Holy Ghost and we can burn her stuff and she's never stepping foot back in here. Now, did you know prior to that, that she had a, any type of background with the church or? Nothing, nothing at all. I knew nothing. And I remember I went upstairs and I like erased my name off the board. I was like, I'm going home. I was like, I'm going home. I can't do this no more. And like, I left and I remember like I left, I packed all my stuff up and one of the bouncers was like, you know, where are you going? I was like, I, I'm done. I can't, 
I can't do this anymore. Like, I just can't, I was like, I'm never coming back. And he was like, oh, you'll be back. They always come back. And cause I made really good money. I mean, I, I made really good money. I was pretty, I was skinny, you know, I knew how to run game. I wasn't, you know, I had all my teeth, you know, I wasn't a junkie drug addict that had the physical, you know, stuff going on. I definitely was doing a lot of drugs and definitely drinking, but it hadn't taken that toll on me yet. And so I remember I left and I came home. I was like, baby, I, I don't know what's going on, but I can't do that no more. I was like, I, I just can't. And he was like, okay. He's like, that's fine. Cause at that point I had started waiting tables because him and I had gotten so serious that I was like, Ooh, I can't be finessing people and then go home to you. So I'd switched to waiting tables. And then I was like, I'm done. I can't, I can't be in this world anymore. But I remember like coming to church and there was a handful of people that were they were wonderful. They were so kind to me. They didn't care what I looked like or smelt like. And, you know, that family that came into Bible studies with us and, you know, super supportive. Like my sister-in-law Lee was totally supportive. Um, you know, my, just so many people who are amazing. My best friend, Kim, she, I mean, she's supportive through all of it. She's, she's not apostolic, she's Catholic, but she, she has been my bit, one of my biggest female supporters. Like, yeah, you need to stop doing this stuff because you're going to die, you know, run to church, go, go do what you got to do type stuff. And, and I remember like coming in and then I remember, you know, the Moonies were amazing. You know, I remember so many times I, and I was so traumatized because I'm like, my friends are dead. My friends went to prison, you know, like that, that was a lot. Do you think looking back, like you, you know, everybody has a different path we take every one of us and, and it looks different for each person thank goodness we I think that's what we'd be a boring we'd be a boring right it's like really what gives us our testimony and so you know when you look back and here you think about your friend that committed suicide and and then your other friends that were you know headed to prison and it's like do you looking back do you think that's God's way of saying hey he's knocking on your door I do because again you know, the difference with being apostolic and then not being apostolic is the spiritual side. That's, that's a real defining, I mean, we could totally go down the road of like Trinitarian versus oneness and all that, but it's that spirituality. I was in the devil's playground for years, years between the bartending and the stripping. And I mean, I'm, I knew the devil and I danced with him, you know, I, I danced with him all the time. And when I remember when I was like, I'm done with the drugs, like I'm done with everything I'm done with. And my husband, you know, my people, they see me kind of go through the withdrawals because I had been, you know, smoking weed and taking ecstasy and acid and drinking. Vodka was my thing. Like vodka was like, that was my water. And they see me just, I mean, go through the withdrawals of like craving it and like trying to step down and the physical stuff that was going on. And I remember, and I think Toby, probably Kim, CJ, Lee, I think they're the only four people who actually know about this. Um, and CJ's my sister, Lee is my sister-in-law, Kim's my best friend, and then my husband. They're the, I think they're the only four that know about this part where I had just was like, I'm done. Like, I, I mean, I dropped my Nokia phone. And this is this how long ago I had a Nokia cell phone. And because I had everyone's phone numbers, I had, I mean, like every bar owner, bouncers, drug dealer, like I had all these things. I just, I dropped it in, I dropped it in the toilet and was like, cause I knew inside of me, if I still had that connection, I could reach out. 
I could, I could get a fix. I could, you know, Hey, I'm coming, let me come work. Cause I've worked in a lot of different clubs and I just, I dropped it. And I was like, I, I can't, I got to walk away. And we'd started slowly coming to church and I was real, and I'm, I'm, I'm still funny about people touching me. Like, I just don't like people touching me. And I, I just finally have accepted that's part of my PTSD is I'm never going to be really okay with people. I don't know touching me. And I'm okay with that. And I tell people, I'm like, man, I don't know you. So I need you back up. <laughs> you a little too close. I don't do altar work, you know, like I just, and if I go to get prayed for, usually I'm kind of off to the side because I don't want randos coming up and praying for me and laying their hands on me. Cause then I'm like, why are you touching? I know you're doing it for the right reason. But then the other part of me, the human side of me is like, I just want to hit you in the face because you're touching me. And, you know, that's a really important thing to bring, you know, an important uh, piece of it, because like I have PTSD as well. And that whole thing of touch is just, and I don't think people realize this and, and I don't blame them. No, not at all. They just don't understand. They don't know. And there's that chapter they're walking in on a different chapter. So they wouldn't know they wouldn't make the connection. I mean, it took me a long time to get used to being hugged and, and, uh, and I still struggle with it a little bit, but I'm a whole lot better than I was in the past. And I, I, a friend of mine at church, she's so sweet and she's just super precious. We was at a, we was at a ladies function at church and it was, a. I don't know, it was Friday night, I think. And they're playing this game and it's loud. Like, so the game was this, they had a, a balloon tied to a string and you tied the string around your ankle. And the object of it was you step on, you, everybody was trying to step on the other person's balloon. So whoever had the, the <laughs> balloon was the winner of this game. And I'm just like, immediately I'm like on, and it's loud, the popping pop pop. And I'm just like, but nobody can see what I'm doing, but I'm like literally jumping. And I was just like very high alert. And this wasn't too long ago. I think this has been within the last six months. And my, my sweet friend, she says, I don't remember exactly what she said. And I said, I said, I can't deal with all that. And I said, in fact, uh, I said, haven't you ever noticed? I I'm always in the back of the church and I don't get right up in the middle of it. And I said, I'm just, I said, cause I really I have a hard time with people touching me and she, it, it finally clicked with her because she's very huggy and touchy and that's just who she is. She's like, oh, oh, and it was like, I said, it's okay. Yeah. So people, I don't think some people realize that. No, but like, so what had happened was it was like at church, like just praying, like, God, I have this heaviness. And I, I loved my pastor was brother Paul D. Mooney and his wife sister Mooney. And they were so kind to me the whole time. Cause I remember looking at him one of the times I was there and I had a blue bandana on and I had wide leg pants on. I probably had a crop top cause I was really skinny. And I just told him like, all this stuff has happened. He was kind. He gave me a hug. He's like, that's a lot to carry. You got a lot. And I remember we were sitting at, there was one of the times my husband and I, we were out to eat. And I remember it was Texas Roadhouse. And I just looked at him and was like, I'm not taking any more drugs. Like, I'm just, I'm done. I'm not drinking anymore. I'm, I'm done. And I remember, I don't, again, there goes that timeline. You know, I don't, it's all kind of blurred, but we were in the bed and I remember, and I woke up and I, hence now I've accepted God does talk to me in dream, no longer shy away when I know God's voice says you need to do this. 
in the beginning, I totally did. I was like, I can't say that to them. Now I'm like, hey, what's up? I feel like God told me to tell you this. You better ride with it. Goodbye. God bless. Okay, there you go. God, I move on. You probably would say it just like that too. I I totally, yeah. (laughs) So we were laying in bed and I had like a little red Bible. I remember waking up and screaming in the name of Jesus, you get out of my house. And like, I was standing and I was, you know, in a fighter's position. And I remember, and like, even now I could still right, I still know what happened. And in the dream, everything was dark, but it was like, there was this like little demon creature that was crawling around in the dark and was a scared of the light. And I remember like, that cannot come in this house. And I think it was probably a good month that I slept with the lights on playing gospel music with the Bible on my chest. Cause I was like, I don't know what that thing was, but I know it can't come in here. So we, we went through and we invited people over and we anointed the house and, you know, the apartment we were living in. We touched everything with oil and prayed and rebuked everything. And this was an old house, right? Yeah. This was the old apartment. Yeah. We left residue of Crisco all over the place. <laughs> oh girl, I still do it. We have, we have residue in our house and I have, I do it in my office. Like people come in, they're like, you know, you need to wipe that off. I was like, don't you dare wipe that off. That's the oil. Yeah. Like people are coming into my office with their own spirits. I don't want them coming in and not being able to really be who they need to be and hear God or hear clinical language and be able to be moved towards healing if they're bringing a spirit with them. So usually every couple of months when I feel funky in the room, I'm like, ooh, it's time. We're going to be praying and touching everything in the name of Jesus and nothing can come in and you've got to stop at this threshold and you've got to stop at this threshold. And yeah, there's handprints all over my office because I still do it. Because ever since then we did that, I never have had that issue. I've never seen that. I've never experienced that. And I was like, oh, I think I'm in a spiritual battle, right? You know, I've been playing with the devil and now I'm saying goodbye. And I had just kind of shifted and was like, I'm going to go to school for cosmetology. I'm getting out of this, which I did and got my license in cosmetology. And then was like, oh, maybe I'll go to Bible college. And it shifted again. And that's how it works too. And it shifted again. (laughs) And that's a good point you bring up too, about like the spiritual aspect. Now, I know there are some people in church that think everything that happens is the devil. It's the devil. (laughs) It's it's the devil. Death, you are in a spiritual battle. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, it's the spiritual battle. And not everything is. I mean, not everything is. mm -mm. So there are things that definitely are. And throughout my walk with Christ, I've definitely recognized when I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was a spiritual battle, you know, but that kind of was, but some things really are behavioral. They're learned. They are, your brain is rewired because of trauma. Right. And some things too are, are not only just behavioral, but they're also learned behaviors. There are, are triggers that just like with the whole me and Felicia, like, don't touch us. That's a trigger. That is nothing like we're not trying to be super spiritual or anything like that. No, that's where trauma informed care comes in. So I worked with sex traffic girls for four and a half years and it was very common. They would come in and like clinically, clinically. Yes. I've always had a passion for traffic girls because my friend working as a sex worker, I have a heartbeat for it. I've kind of hit pause on it because it's taxing. Yes. Yes. It's taxing. By the time I left courage center, it, it, 
just doing that work had really taken a toll on me. But the girls would come in and I, I have one particular person in mind as you would say certain words. And it was like, she was trying to climb the concrete walls to get out. Right. One of my girls, they thought, she thought that she saw the person who kidnapped her and it turned into a whole thing. And it wasn't that person. We had to ride that wave of the PTSD trigger until she was able to go back to baseline. What churches don't realize is people come in and they sit down on the pew and you're up there singing Tasha Cobbs, you know, you're singing Donna Lawrence, yeah. you know, you're singing Fred Hannon and everyone else is like, oh, that's my jam. And they're like, let me run down and shout. And they're over here. Like, that's what I used to get raped to, you know, like, and they freeze. It's not church as a whole, but it's, but it's individuals, you know, yes, their experience. You look like, oh, wait a minute. You know, maybe they grew up in a church where the men were only allowed to wear white shirts on the pulpit. Yeah. And so they walk in and that's a real that thing. That is a real certain thing. Denominations and districts of the country. You are not stepping foot on top of a platform if you don't have a white shirt on. I don't understand it. I think it's ridiculous. But these people, they walk in and they see the pastor who's not the person who abused them, who has nothing to do with that organization, who has nothing to do with anything. But he has a white shirt. And- to wear a white shirt, their mind goes, oh no, this is just like that. I can't do this. And they get up and leave. Because their brain told them this is not safe because the person who used to belittle them wore a white shirt. I always find it interesting how you make those connections. Mm -hmm. And until you can make those connections, like, okay, this is why I keep doing this. Every time I see this, hear this, whatever, whatever. It's like, you're going to keep repeating that same thing. Until you can get unstuck in your brain. Yeah. And then also in a safe place, exposure therapy. Right. In a safe place, be present until you can't take it no more. And then go do something calming with a safe person. Go do something calming where you're still in the building. Right. You know, you're still there. You're not running away, but you know, you're going to go and sit someplace else. One of the things I always encourage people if they've experienced church hurt is, you know, sit in the parking lot and listen. Right. Maybe don't sit in the sanctuary, but like sit in the hallway where you could still listen. Yes. Find the safe place in the building that when you, you, when you've just been overwhelmed, you can walk out again and you can just go pull yourself together, do some coping skills, return to baseline, do all the self, you know, have your toolbox, have your little basket, have your, whatever it is that you do, and then come back. The other thing is being able to be communicative with the pastor. They don't know. And that's where that oh, this is spiritual. You're getting up and you're walking out and you're being disrespectful. That's the devil. And it's like, no, they're having a PTSD moment. That's not spiritual. That doesn't always come from pastors either. No, it could be the music director. It could be the youth leader. It could be the elderly saint on the pew. It could be the color of the carpet. (laughs) Let's just be real. It could be just about anything. So when you talk about baseline, because that's one of those clinical words. So explain what baseline is. So baseline is everybody's normal. Everyone's normal is different. Some people, they're just naturally shy. Some people, they're naturally talkative. Some people are just naturally assertive, aggressive, you know, all these different things. When you know someone's baseline and all of a sudden you see a deviation in the baseline, that's when you should be asking what just happened. Right. You come in and you normally talk to me, but now you're going in and hiding in your room what changed? Like you normally talk a lot. Now you're not talking. Yeah. What changed? What changed? Yeah. And that's where it is very important. And people, they're not self-aware. 
They don't understand their own baselines, their own triggers, their own coping skills, because you got multi-generations of people saying mental health is not real. Behavioral health is not real. Counseling's not real. That's, you know, that's the devil. That's, you know, oh, if you do too much looking into yourself, you know, you've gone Eastern. Or if you go, you know, trying to talk too much about your pride or who you are, you're being prideful and pride cometh before the fall. And so it's like, we've, we've got generations of people who've taught so much that you can never look in that now you have a whole group of people who've never looked at themselves. Right. And they're lost. Exactly. And it goes back to being stuck. It really does. Yes. Here, not too long ago, I wrote something on my Facebook page for those who are my Facebook friends. And this is what I wrote. And I think it's really important to bring this in. It says, if we stay stuck in things from the past, then we will never move forward. We weren't meant to stay stuck concerning the things from the past, but here's something to consider. Becoming unstuck from the hurts of the past is not about shoving it away, stuffing it down, avoiding it, neglecting it, or simply put burying it away in the depths of our life. If you think not dealing with the issues of the past is the same as moving forward, then you're sadly mistaken. When we avoid neglect, shove away, stuff it down or bury it, then whatever happened years ago will only continue to resurface, but in other ways. And that's where that, Mm -hmm. why can't I get over this? You know, it's that instant gratification ain't happening because that's what people want. And so unresolved issues can show up a number of ways, not a complete list, but some of the ways unresolved issues can show up is like being resistant to change, even positive change. Mm -hmm. Shame and guilt are very present in body language, even when words aren't spoken. There's a constant need to control or plan everything that's done. There's micromanaging everything and possibly everyone around them. Difficulty concentrating, hates asking for help, lashes out at others, low self-esteem or competency, anxiety, panic attacks, poor quality of sleep. And not dealing with or avoiding the issues from the past is just as bad as continuing to stay stuck on the issues from the past. As for those symptoms of unresolved issues that plague you, that's not getting better, that's not healing like you think it's supposed to, if these unresolved issues are not dealt with, you won't heal. Those symptoms will only get worse as time continues. But here's the plus of it. As those issues from the past are dealt with, those symptoms will go away. And then those things from the past can be left in the past. And that's the key right there. God doesn't expect nor want you to carry around the issues from the past. He will help you heal. And sometimes healing happens through the help of a friend, through the help Mm. of your church. Mm. Where's the organ? Through the help. (laughs) Preach it, sister, preach it. We we need the organ. I know, right? (laughs) Through the help of a minister or through the help of a therapist. Mm. And that's what it. (laughs) Yes. If I could do the organ sound, I would right now. (laughs) That's what you need an audio put in. I might have to do that sometime. But, uh, you know, and that's the whole instant we got to allow, you know, if you're going through things, it's like, and you're expecting that instant, why isn't this happening? Why haven't I got over this? Yeah. You got to allow yourself some grace. Yeah. But people don't do that because people do not give themselves the same grace and mercy. They give somebody else. Right. My favorite, favorite phrases. Josh Anderson, he used to be a youth leader here in Indianapolis. He used to always say when we were first coming into church, he used to always say to the youth and to us, 
the amount of grace that you grace and mercy you give someone else is what someone's going to give to you. And that stuck with me. That absolutely did because I would watch people and I'm like, like there's one particular person who's coming to mind that they never offered grace and mercy to anybody. Everything was rigid, real rigid, harsh. And there was a situation that happened. And from what I understand, there's not been a lot of grace and mercy from people. And his voice continues to ring in my head. Like, would that situation be different if throughout that person's existence, they would have been giving more grace and mercy? You know, would they have been treated differently? That situation been treated differently if there had been more grace and mercy given out. And that was one of those things, trauma-informed care. When I would work with the girls, when I work with clients, when I work with, you know, I bridge with pastors and clients. I, I try really, really hard to make sure that is in, in just ingrained in everybody. You got to give grace and mercy. We are not perfect. We're not Jesus. You know, people are going to relapse. They're going to mess up. They're going to cuss. They're not going to be this perfect person 24 seven because we are human. Right. And I think people get mixed up with that in their thinking of, well, I've arrived. I've been in church for 20 years. I have the Holy Ghost. There becomes an arrogance that comes with that where it's very much like the Pharisees. It stinks. Well, I have struggles, but then they don't share what the struggles are. So then shame still is able to rule because, well, I, we just don't talk about that publicly yeah. because that'll ruin my reputation. We don't talk about certain things because, you know, that will ruin and that will, you know, that will close doors. And, and that's, and that's a cultural thing. Yeah. There are certain things that absolutely, if you do certain things, it is going to close doors. Yes. If you're going to say, I'm going to be a licensed minister in whatever denomination, but you're going to go rail cocaine and have sex with sex workers, probably not going to be a good thing. You know, it's really going to ruin your reputation as a pastor, (laughs) you know, probably not. That makes me think of (laughs) here not too long ago. It's probably been within the last six months, but that guy, I think he, in the denominal world, he was very much talking about the Bible and Jesus, what have you. But yet he was hiring sex workers and going to the massage parlor. And then his whole view was, this is my gift. Needless to say, when it came out, it, it shut doors for him. Yeah, there are. And I think that that's why I said, there's certain things that absolutely is going to shut a door for you. But then there's other things that I think people need to know that you just struggle. Because if we as Christians present an unattainable perfection, why is anyone going to want to try to even live a disciplined life? If we never talk about, well, yeah, this, I struggled with this. I lost my cool because when you came to me, I really kind of had a flashback moment where I thought, or intrusive thought, however you want to say it, that you were my stepdad. I was that five-year-old kid again being yelled at when you came at me that way. That's why I shut down being able to do boundaries work and stuff like that. And being able to come and say, Hey, that's one of the things that I do teach with trauma-informed care is when the pastor knows and the first lady or the youth, you know, whoever we're working with knows that the client is struggling with something. One of the things that I always try to, and like encourage is when you're having a moment where you feel like you're being violated, you're feeling like a boundary is being abused, or you're kind of confused stop in that moment and look at them and say, okay, you said this, but I feel like this is what this means to see if it matches what they say. And also people need to know this as well. Cause I know you've stated that when I've gone to their pastor, 
you don't just go to their pastor. Right? Let me just put that out there. So uh, we don't do that. Ethically, we can't do that. Thank you for getting that. It's against the law. No, that's against the law. I like my lessons. <laughs> I worked really hard. In the, <laughs> that would be pretty, that'd be really bad. Just so people know that when like therapists consult with a pastor, it's yeah. because the client has signed a release for that therapist yes. to talk to the pastor. Otherwise, no, we're, we're pretty tight lipped no. about stuff. I'm like Vegas. <laughs> I just, I, I keep it all quiet. <laughs> what? I know nothing. I just smile and nod. Smile and wave. <laughs> smile and wave. <laughs> That's it. And the other thing too, that, you know, people need to be aware of as well is sometimes we will consult with our colleagues, but we never give any identifying no. information. Like, Hey, I no. saw Joe Schmo that lives up on yeah. 35th Avenue. And I do not know any Joe Schmoes on 35th Avenue. I'm just telling you, but it's just, we don't give out identifying information because the thing of it is, is like, sometimes I know uh, there's a, another therapist, a colleague who's dealt with a particular situation. And I'm not quite familiar with how that's supposed to work out or look. And, and so that in cases like that is where consultation comes in. Keeps us ethical. Yeah. It keeps us ethical and medical doctors do it all the time when they're dealing with medical issues. And it helps. So like, if there's any kind of transference that we don't recognize that someone can say, Hey, are you struggling with something internally? Because I've had that happen with a few of my clients where I was like, man, this really got me. And I'm under supervision with Ifama Morrison. And I would go to her and be like, man, Ifama, like boss lady, I'm having a problem because when I'm talking to this girl, I, I feel like I am my 15, 16 year old self who was abandoned. Right. You know, I feel like, oh my gosh, I am my 22 year old self who's lost working as a stripper and my identity and my idea of what being successful was how much money I had, the best party that we could throw, you know, the being able to walk into the mall and just drop money like it was nothing and walk out. Like I had bought into what at the time my influence had told me was successful. And so when I would meet some of my girls, there were a couple of them that I was like, a little too close to home, like, you know, but I'm a progress in work. Yep. And it happens to all of us. It really does. I, I call it the punch in the gut is what I call it. Cause it's like, yeah. it takes your breath away. It does. But at the same time, doing the supervision and having the conversations and talking, it's like, even seeing my own therapist, it was so amazing to be able to realize I walked for a while with a cloud like a dark cloud for a while with everything that's been going on as therapists. I mean, we've been carrying the pandemic right. and trying to be the safe container for everybody. And we're right in the middle of it with everybody else. And yeah, we're in the middle of it, trying to balance virtual learning with our kids and our own pandemic. And even now with everyone worried about everything shutting down again, and our school's going to go back, like, okay, what do we do? I, I have to have five different plans because what if I have to balance my private practice again with virtual learning and hiring people and all these different moving parts, like what's going to look different and holding the container like last summer with all the racial riots last summer, 75% of my clients were black. Yeah. I'm, I'm as pasty as they come. And I was like, I can, I don't understand. I can never empathize. And I mean, I don't know what it's like to walk out with brown skin and have someone hate me. 
I know what it's like to walk out and have white skin and have people hate me. I know what it's like to walk out and have long hair and a skirt in Indiana and somebody automatically hate me because I'm Pentecostal in Pentecost apostolic heaven of Indiana. I know what that's like, but I don't know what it's like to walk out. So all I could do last summer was just hold and let people cry. Yeah. And I just embrace and let me, let me just take what I can and help you and just be present Yes. and all this stuff, the back-to-back loss. And, you know, my mom died, sister Mooney died. And then we got COVID and, you know, just my stepmom died. We just had back-to-back-to-back loss that I walked around for like six months with the cloud over my face. Like, I was just like, I'm so lost. And it was so funny because talking about the brain and the trauma there were certain times that I would code switch and I would sound like I did in my twenties. Yeah. And I would just, the way that I responded, the way that I, my accent, my, you know, different things would come out because I definitely sounded way more hood than I've trained myself to not sound that way. It, certain things would come out and people would catch it. And like, why do you sound funny? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it didn't register until like some of my family pointed out was like, Felicia, why do you, you know, my sister in particular was like, Felicia, I feel like I'm talking to like 21 year old version of you. And I'm like, no. And so then it just, I finally was like, okay, let me go see a therapist. And I remember we were doing the brain spotting thing and she, you know, was like, okay, I hold my eyes here. And then it was just like, Sarah McLachlan's song came on something about enough. I forget what it was. And I could totally hear it right now. It's playing in my head, but I remember being in the van and I was like, oh my God, there's no music on. And I hear it like, am I crazy? Right. And it came on and she's like, just ride with it. Just ride with it. Let the surface, you know, let everything come up. And I could feel this burning right on this side, this right side of my head. It was like, I could hear a match light and then this burning. And I was like, what just happened in my brain? Right, right. Her and I talked and I talked with another lady that that knows a lot about brain spotting and, you know, different people. And we've kind of come to the conclusion that that was a perfect example of therapy and God meeting at the same time. Right. Because when brain spotting happens, you don't always have the burning piece in your brain, but you have all these neural pathways. Yes. You have all those things that the things that fire together, wire together. And we've come to that decision that like that, because what pulled up was everything that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, all that stuff that happened surfaced. And I had not thought about that in 20 plus years. And the last time I had loss was then. Yes. Like that much loss. And I was like, oh. and as soon as God, I know is God did the whole burning thing and took that, that neural pathway out of my brain. I've been cool. Black cloud gone. It's lifted. Let the switch flipped. I've been back to normal. And it goes back to like, how come we're not getting instant gratification? What have you? It's because you haven't dealt with that stuff and it's been buried. Yes. And- Yes. And so sometimes God will put people in your path and to kind of push your button to get you motivated to either they're going to motivate you to do something or you're going to like even get worse. And yes, for people who do not know what brain spotting is. Okay. Let me just explain this real fast. So brain spotting uh, is a branch off of eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And I can't believe I just said that because I, because <laughs> I always get that messed up, AKA EMDR and EMDR is very rigid. They use it a lot for trauma, PTSD. And they've also used it for people with borderline personality, but it's very rigid, very structured EMDR is. Brain spotting, on the other hand, is more fluid. It's more versatile. And so 
you go and you sit in front of the therapist and they're going to hold up a wand, a finger, a pencil, something, your face, your head face is going to be straightforward, but your eyes are going to be kind of like when you go to the eye doctor and they say, watch this, watch the light, you know, follow the light while you're following this wand or pencil or whatever the stick, the therapist is just slowly moving it from left to right. And here's the thing about it when there's something, and and I know some people think this is crazy, but when you hit a particular spot, wherever that it gets to, you're going to have a reaction and you cannot control it whatsoever. It's like, it's just going to happen. And it's in that reaction. It's like, oh, and so we stop there and we're not moving forward. And we're going to talk about what's going on right now. What are you thinking of? And this has nothing to do with brain spotting, but if you pay attention to people, if you're much of a people watcher, just watch when they're angry, where they look to you. When they're happy, what direction do they look to you? And it will be very telling. It's like, oh, your brain will default to the narrative that's comfortable. It's like your eyes bounce and they're literally looking for the narrative that you know that's comfortable. So you don't focus and you don't feel the thing that broke you. Exactly. And I've done brain spotting. When my mother passed away, I, well, I didn't do brain spotting. I actually did do the EMDR, but I kind of, so this was, this is just me. I have to be different, obviously. <laughs> so I was like really stuck. I was dealing with complicated grief when my mother, after she had passed away and all this negative stuff concerning my mother was just like, it was surfacing. And I just was not getting better as in the middle of grad school. And it was just not great. So I found somebody, I actually drove two hours. Now talk about the pride of a future therapist, but I drove two hours because I didn't want anybody to know I was going to see this lady for EMDR, but I went and I did like an hour and a half session after three sessions, it was like, I could get on with life, but we also tweaked it because I wasn't having it any other way. Cause I got ADD brain true EMDR you don't talk. And this wasn't working for me because I got too distracted with everything. And then I forgot what I was supposed to be thinking on. And so I said, no, this is not working. We got to change it up. So we kind of did a in-between of brain spotting and EMDR. We would do the, she used what was called tappers. I use them in my practice. And what are tappers for people who don't know what those are? Yeah. So these are little things <laughs> you hold. They look like little paddles and you hold them and they vibrate from one hand to the next. And so it's that bilateral stimulation. What is bilateral? <laughs> I just love you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but bilateral is back and forth after, after three sessions, it was better. And, and I was able to get on with life. And that's the whole thing with brain spotting and, and also with different types of therapies, a person doesn't have to stay in therapy forever. Sometimes you, you go for a short period, you work on that one thing and then you go on, you don't go back for a while. Therapy is a good thing. I would love to see people move to a more holistic idea of healing. Right. And not just such a, we are only clinical, right? There is no spirituality. We are only spiritual. There's no clinical. Yeah. When we can meet in the middle and then that that's going to help diffuse that concept of instant gratification. 
is the psychoeducation because I'm big on psychoeducation. Like, okay, great. You have this. This is what this means. I feel like probably 80% of a, my work as a therapist is psychoeducation. Yes. Is just educating people on something because we eat, breathe, sleep. I mean, we, we live in this body, but most people don't even know their body. They're not self-aware. Right of what triggers they actually have or like, well, me doing this is connected to this. If I stop doing this, this changes. But I feel like if we could get a more holistic, that's where it's kind of got a bridge. And I know you and I have talked about this is I've learned and I'm recognizing there's a split there is a generational split in the church and this is different denominations. This is not just in the apostolic world, but it's like people who are like that 55 and older. Yes. They have that old rigid counseling of the devil. We don't, we do don't that. talk about that you stuff. Give it to the altar. <laughs> you give it to Jesus. You ain't praying enough and very shaming. Yes. So then you've got this little saint who's like, I've been praying my whole life. My husband died, but I'm still struggling with grief. And I don't know how to deal with it. And I don't know how to deal with it, but you're telling me I haven't prayed enough. You're telling me that I don't read my Bible enough and I don't talk to God enough. So now you've just entered into spiritual self-shaming and a spiritual spiral that I'm not good enough, but yet I'm doing all this stuff. This is my lifestyle. This is who I am. Yes. But because my pastor is telling me counseling is not needed because my husband died, now I've just spiraled Yes, and I've gone down. Not all pastors say that. No, and they don't, which is where I was getting ready to say, like, you've got that window, like 45 and younger, where they're like, they're taking over the retired churches. They're starting new churches. And they're like, right. you got trauma. Yes. You have bipolar. You need medicine. Right. Who's your doctor? Oh, you've got all this stuff going on. Who's your therapist? Who's the counselors? Who can I refer people to? Who can come into the church and do trainings and teach my staff just so we're up to date? Right. That's happening. And then that 10 win, that 10 year window, that 45 to 55, it kind of depends because <laughs> there's some people who are like, yes. And then there's other people who are still like, no, Yes. but then you've got that like window of people who are like, because it's challenging their core belief of what they were taught. If you know, whoever taught them was an amazing person and they're still amazing person. They are still an amazing pastor. Yes. Whoever they sat under taught them, but you learn something new. Yeah. It does not mean that they were not a good pastor, but some people, their core belief, if I go against what I was taught, you're talking about shaking their entire foundation, which can crumble into what else do I question? Right. Exactly. What else did that person teach me that is wrong? Yes. And people are afraid of that. Yes. They were afraid of, if I believe that this is true and this has been told to me to be wrong, what else is wrong? And that's a can of things that, again, not being self-aware, when you go through life and you just swallow whatever, this is gospel, this is gospel, this is gospel, this is why we do this, but you don't ever do your own groundwork. You don't ever get in your own Bible, get your own convictions, get your own, this is an understanding of the difference between biblical scripture, church culture, Church organization culture. Yes, yes. <laughs> they are three different things. You know, church organizations, they have, they are a well-oiled machine. It does not matter what you call yourself. Their interest is the denomination that of the bylaws of that organization. Then you have the church culture, which could be a part of that same denomination, but they have a different functioning. They don't care if you have a beard. Well, the bylaw says you shouldn't have beards. Well, they don't care. So everyone's got beards. Yeah, because some churches, I don't care what denomination it is. Like some churches literally 
it's okay to dress this way or have a beard or whatever the case. And other churches, it's not okay. And, you know, for years, I really struggled with that. Like, why? But, you know, I think about like Moses, who set the boundary around the mountain? It was Moses. And so for each church, that leadership is the one that sets this. And so when you have a good leadership that says, time out, I'm recognizing this is not my strength. This is not my lane. I need to refer. I need help. Right. You've got a great pastor. Yes. You have a great pastor, a pastor who can continue to acknowledge that they need to learn and that they're not done learning. That is a great pastor. And the other thing too, about like pastors who do that, who, Hey, we need some extra help here. They know that that therapist is not going to try and convince the, their church member to go somewhere (laughs) else or try to pastor them. I don't want to try to be liberal. Yeah. That's the other thing I've heard. Well, you know, you're so liberal, which, and and I'm kind of middle of the road. Like I'm liberal for my conservative friends, but I'm conservative for my liberal friends. And I'm okay (laughs) with that. I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm in the middle. But it's so funny because there is a, there's almost like an element of pride that comes in of loss of control. Yes. If you come in and you can influence my saint, I've lost control. Yes. And I'm like, time out. God did not call me to attend to someone's soul. I am not a pastor. I'm not. Right. I don't want to be. That God didn't call God called me to be a therapist to help the human side. And if I can help the human side in the moment where they're broken and still in that moment point to God, right? Then you still get to be their pastor and you have a stronger saint. Yes. And you have a better person who's not going to leave the body of Christ. Exactly. And for any leadership that's listening to this, any pastors out there. If you see a member of your church is really struggling, find a therapist in your community. If nothing else, like go to the Center for Apostolic Counseling, look them up online. There's therapists there. And if you're not apostolic, I mean, there's so many other Christian networks that people are a part of also. There is. And I just need to put this out there. I love my pastor and my leadership. I love my first lady. I love our entire pastoral team. They are amazing. I cannot say enough good things about them, but it's a real thing. Like therapists are not, could you find a therapist, a bad therapist and a lot of them that's got an agenda? Yes. But you can find that with a pastor, right? But there is truly something that happens when they can collaborate as a team for the benefit and the the supporting of the person that they're both mutually working with. Right. And that person gets stronger and their faith is stronger and they stay, they don't run away. Exactly. It's a beautiful thing, but that's, you know, back to, like you said, people want the instant gratification as it's like a new drug. Like I should be changed overnight. Well, no bereavement and loss. It could take a few years. The effects of everything that happened in 2020, we are going to see kids who struggle with school. Yes. We're going to see teachers who struggle with going back to do what they were called to do. We're going to see medical workers. So it's like, there's going to be this whole thing where people are like, wait a minute. And when you are your weakest, if you don't have a connection with a good pastor who's healthy, that is when you can be like, I'm out. Where's God in this? And yes, the whole enemy and, you know, which is for some people is a concept, but the enemy and, you know, the devil is real. That's when it's going to work. Well, you're weak mentally and physically. So I'm going to come in here and attack you spiritually. Or I'm going to place thoughts in your mind that you normally wouldn't be thinking about. Right. And so, and then you have the catastrophizing of, 
oh my goodness, I was weak because in this moment, I could only as a human take so much. I could only see so many patients come in, die of COVID. And then my mother died of COVID. And then, you know, this person died of COVID. And then, oh my gosh, my city burnt down. Physically, you can only handle so much and you are going to shut down. That's how we're built. That's how, I mean, the amygdala is going to go danger, danger, and we're shutting down. Right. We have to save ourselves because nothing's happening. And then the brain shuts down and then opens the door for, you know, disassociation, which you know about, but like, <laughs> you know, it, it just, it becomes this whole thing. And then becomes the catastrophizing is people will get, if they come from a rigid background where there is no full circle here, full circle, we're, we're going to lay the plane <laughs> right here. If you come from a rigid background where there is no grace and mercy. When you as a human cannot handle it and you shut down. Yes, I think this is a good bring it to the close point. Yes, we have come full circle. Yeah, but full circle is when you relapse. Yes. When you are very human because you have been handed the worst that a human can handle. If you have a rigid mindset, you won't give yourself grace and mercy to walk back into the door of Christ. So speaking on that, I want you to talk to that person out there who is going through those very things. Talk to them and talk to that pastor who's like questioning, what do I need to do different? I would say to the person that is struggling and you putting on a good face. You got the being a Christian down pat. It doesn't matter if you're a good Catholic, a good Baptist, a good apostolic. You got it down pat. You know how to look the part and smile and praise the Lord, sister. And you know how to clap and say the amen, but then you go home and behind closed doors. That doesn't match what you're presenting. It might be time to see a therapist. It might be time to reassess. If you don't like who you look, when you look in the mirror and you don't like who you are, that's a good time to see a therapist. When you can check off on the Christian discipline list of, I pray daily, I read my Bible, I'm listening to some gospel music, I'm listening to different Christian podcasts, I'm attuning to different disciplines, I'm practicing them, I'm not just saying them and then going and doing stupid stuff, but like, I'm really genuinely trying, but yet I'm still, something's not clicking. I'm still sad. I'm still anxious. I'm, I'm still having nightmares. I'm still having flashbacks. That might be time to talk to a therapist. And we're out there. There are clinical therapists who are licensed and trained. And we have a Christian worldview that we will not tell you, no, you can't do that. But talk to someone. To the pastor, don't be afraid that therapists are going to come in and try to take your saints. We don't want to be your saints pastor. We want to help and come in and keep the body of Christ in the body of Christ. We want to help the pastors because you guys are carrying a burden. You're carrying the weight of the church of everyone who is traumatized by the pandemic, the racial riots, the continued polarized politics, and you know the fear mongering of everything's going to collapse again. And everyone's talking about the potential collapse of the real estate market again. It's going to be worse than 08. And you guys are carrying that. We're not here to take your church. We're here to help you. Pastors need a therapist also. The suicide rate in pastors is high, and the amount of pastors who turn in their ministerial license is even higher because they're done. But if you could just see a therapist, because a therapist who doesn't see a therapist should not think there's a problem. I see a therapist. Most of the therapists I know have a therapist because we are taking on the weight of the world and we have to have somebody to talk to just to be like, I got, I got to get this out because I, I don't even know. But let us come in. Let us help you. Let us support you. 
let us come in and help and train. And our training is not to get you guys to be clinical therapists. It's just to help you guys see what's happening, to help you guys have skills. So you guys keep people in your church because that's the goal. We want to keep the body of Christ in it. We don't want to come in and sever people. We don't want to cut them off. I don't want to ever die and go to meet Jesus and hear, hey, you cut all these people off the body of Christ. I want to be able to say, yeah, I try to help. And this is this is how I try to push them towards God, point their eyes towards God, heal the human. So just be willing to bridge. That's the big thing I would say. Be willing to learn and be willing to bridge and communicate and find someone that you could communicate with. I mean, we can always try to help you connect with somebody and collaborate and consult. But 2021 being a pastor is not 1950 being a pastor. It's different. and If COVID has taught anything, it's taught that mental health is real. We can no longer put our head in the sand as the church and say it doesn't exist or that it's all spiritual. We just, we can't, you know, I see the panic in them. I see people who are like literally willing to walk out because they can't do it anymore. And I would hope that no pastor gets to that position, no first lady, no youth leader, no music director gets to that point that they're so overwhelmed with just the stress of the church and burnout and trying to help and carry everything that they're willing to just give over their license and walk away. When there's people who I promise you, they're willing to help. They keep your secrets. We want to help. It was so fun having you today. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. I know I feel like we were like, over here, over here, over here, circle back, which is a typical conversation between me and Denise. It is, it is. And (laughs) what I really enjoy because it makes it that much more interesting and we keep up with each other that way. Yes. But you're going to have to come back on (laughs) anytime and we'll, we'll do another one. If anyone out there has got anything out of this podcast, if you found it helpful, or if you know somebody that is dealing with these very things, or maybe your pastor, it would be helpful to your pastor. By all means, share the podcast with them, share this episode with them, because if they don't know, nothing's going to change. But with awareness can come change. That's like that concept. Jim Sleevey used to always say, exposure breeds a burden. Well, until next time, everybody have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.